Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to the Liverpool Groove. Today, I'm delighted to say joining us is 10-time British champion and Paralympic table tennis superstar, Jack Hunter-Spivy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on, boys. I appreciate no it. No problem. How are you doing? You're all good? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Uh, yeah, just training, plugging away, uh, doing what I can do. Getting there. I feel like I'm improving and uh, in times where it's difficult to improve sometimes. So, yeah, just thankful I can carry on training and uh, plodding along. Happy days. Uh, so we'll jump jump straight into it. Uh, no, you grew up in Liverpool as a yeah. as a young as a youngster. Um, where about in Liverpool did you grow up? So I was originally born in Anfield uh, and Venmore, so literally right next to the cop. And uh, my family moved around a bit. So I've lived in Bootle, I've lived in uh, Aintree, I've lived in all sorts really. And at the age of uh, ten, we got bageled in Bootle, and uh, my mum had enough more or less, and we moved to Witness when I was ten. Um, where I found table tennis there. So, yeah, I've moved around quite a lot in Liverpool. Uh, lived quite a lot of places, a few houses when I was a kid. But, uh, yeah, uh, Liverpool and Anfield's probably my home, I'd say. Nothing. What school did you go to? So, I went to um, Ditton Primary Witness, and then I went to um, Good Shepherd, which is a special school in... Uh, where's that? Bootle, I think Good Shepherd is. And I went to... Where did I go to in Liverpool? It's gone my mind. Davenhill. Dave Nill and uh, I think he's also yeah I've got one to a few yeah I'm clueless at anywhere outside not just in Manfield honestly after Formula Garden I, I remember coming home from that from Anfield and he he'd gone to my granddad's by the Lanks and I was following yeah. him saying, I don't know where to go <laughs> Only about yeah, yeah. I'm the same mate I'm really bad at directions <laughs> oh, that's terrible yeah, I've read up a little bit about yeah and I've read the story that. You know, you used to love playing footy as a kid in school and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then you realise, like, you're, running, you're having difficulties and that. Yeah. Is that yeah. when you realise you had issues and, and potential illness? Yeah, so I was born blind and deaf. So when I was first born, the doctor said I'd never walk, talk, do anything. I was just a shell of a baby, more or less. So he told me, mum and dad, that, yeah, I'd be a mute baby. And then nine months old, my mum was singing in the kitchen and she noticed me like turn my head. So uh, I always tell her to bad, bad singing is why my ears come back. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so she, I started like listening to different noises and clicking and a few weeks later, my eyesight developed and I could see things. So the age of nine months, they thought that I was a, a full able-bodied baby sort of thing and they were made up. And then 18 months old, I still wasn't able to crawl or sit up on my own or anything like that. Went for scans and CT scans and all that sort of stuff and got diagnosed with cerebral palsy. So... All that means for me is I'm diplegic, which means it's just my legs affected. So I can still stand a little bit. I can still move my legs and everything like that. I just can't walk. I can take a few steps of crutches at best. So I can't really do that. But as a kid, growing up, as my body's developing, I used to walk around. I used to run around. I had, I had splints on my legs like Forrest Gump, but I used to run around and didn't know any any difference really. And it was, it was frustrating as a kid because I just thought I was slow. I just thought I was one of them kids. I just couldn't run. 
Well, I was mad into sports. I used to love it. I used to do all that sort of stuff, but just couldn't. I couldn't compete with the other kids, and it was so frustrating. And when I found Table Tennis, I started a youth club in uh, in Witness for it was for deprived kids and disabled kids. Really, is my mum never had any money at all. We always had the provy knocking at the door, and we, we she had death coming out of her eyeballs. And my mum struggled mental health problems all her life. She's diagnosed with bipolar and borderline personality and, and all that sort of stuff. So growing up around that, it, it's a very tough environment and fair play to my mum growing up as, as a single parent, effectively um, doing that with me and my brother. So I went to this youth club, we used to get our evening meal, like you used to get a hot meal, make sure you're fed and watered more or less. And they had art and stuff like that and used to meet other kids in similar situations to you. And there was a table to this table and I couldn't play. And with my cerebral palsy coordination is a massive issue. Uh, I'm dyslexic as well. So it, it's tough to uh, to come about hand-eye coordination. But I persevered and loved the uh, the quickness of how it, it was to win points. I loved trying to play against your mates and that quick buzz of like, I'm just beating you in a point and you beating me in a point and that sort of thing. And there was one of the uh, the assistants called Geraldine, really, who, who took a shining to me and uh, sort of helped me play. And at that point, I never wanted to use a wheelchair. I wanted to just be on my feet. I wanted to be next to Steven Gerrard and was just frustrated that I, I couldn't run sort of thing. So I was playing standing up where I had to hold onto the table and sit down every few points because my legs were killing me. I just refused to, to acknowledge that I was any different than other kids. So to cut a long story short, I went to my first uh, table tennis class, which is literally about five minutes down the road in Witness. And my mum, as I say, was very unwell. So Bernardo's took me as like a, a carer chaperone sort of situation. So I first went down there and there was a player called Tony Edge who was in a wheelchair. He was in a car crash in the 70s and he was a lot more disabled than me. He had no grip. He couldn't He couldn't have no core and all that sort of stuff. So he pulled me aside and said, do you want a game? And I said, are oh, you in a wheelchair, lad? I'll beat you easy. I'm not playing you. And uh, he, he sort of looked at me and went, going, and he beat me 22-0. Didn't get a point of him at all. Not anywhere close. And he sort of sat me down and said, I know you love the sport. I know you, I can see you've got potential because you end up hitting the ball and stuff, but you need to start using a wheelchair because you're sitting down, you're crying in agony every point. And it, for me now, Tony was a, a massive, not only a mentor on the table, but off the table as well, of adapting to my disability and adapting to who I am. And now I wouldn't change you for the world. If you if you offered me a, a, a pill to take that would make it your body, I wouldn't take it because it's my unique selling point. It's, it's what I've... What I do, I try and help other people in that situation and I understand from how frustrating that can be. But for me, it's me and I would never change it. So I think growing up, sports has done massive parts for me. But yeah, I think I definitely did. Going back second round to your question was, uh, yeah, I definitely wanted to be next to Stephen Gerrard and couldn't. <laughs> well, didn't we all, mate? At least you had a reason. No, do you know what? Um, when I seen your profile man, on Twitter and I had a look at it and seen you were a Liverpool fan, I said to Jay, like, it'd be great to get him on because, yeah. like, we don't know your whole story, and that's why we're obviously yeah, yeah. got you on. But it, yeah. it is going to, it's an inspiration what you do straight away, yeah. like, to be able to be told, like, you can't do this, you can't do that, but yeah. still have a go. It's um, and get to where you are, it's amazing. So, that's off to you, lad. Thank you. Yeah, and, and you just answered loads of our questions and <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the end, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> I'll just say it in different ways. Be all right. <laughs> no, you you say like um, you know, Tony helped you. Is that yeah. something you see yourself kind of doing more now? And just that you've got that you are a motivational speaker. Yeah. Uh, on your bio as well. So is that something he's helped you in sort of moving on to as well? Yeah, massively. I mean, I was I was that frustrated kid that didn't really talk to many people, and uh, in, especially in growing up in in high school and stuff like that. I was the only kid in the wheelchair. I was the only kid you've ever had that was disabled. 
it was either two choices when I moved to witness. It was either we put you in a special school or you'd have to go to the local Catholic school that's got a ramp. That was literally two choices I had as a kid. So my family being Protestants, I had to bite the bullet and put me in a, in a Catholic school sort of thing. So I'm not religious personally. It made no odds to me. But it was that sort of thing of like there's only one school I could go to. So I was definitely really frustrated. But table tennis was my outlet. And I, I became Jack in the Wheelchair to Jack who plays table tennis. I became one of them people that, that in PE, rather than just being the goalpost, I could be playing table tennis against people, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's one of them, uh, they used to stick me in goals, get the ball fired at me and sell me as a good saver, bounced off my wheel, like it's not. I'm just going <laughs> to try it <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, it was one of them things that like, perceptions changed of being, being disabled and, and Tony definitely did help with that, but sport has been a massive influence in that as well, of of giving me that sort of outlet and and given me a purpose in life because I don't really know where I would be without it. And and the drive that I had as a kid trying to get into GB teams and going up and down trains and having no train fare and, and, and trying to get strangers pay for me and getting bunged off trains and sleeping in hotel lobbies and all that sort of stuff to get to get to where I've been has definitely shaped me as a person. So I just want to give back to other people. And, and there's plenty of people, especially in Liverpool as well, that are in similar situations that can make something of themselves. And people like me aren't meant to be in my situations, but why not? Like, why can't we? And, and that's what I'm trying to do now is inspire the next generation as well as trying to win all the gold medals as well. Some goals to have, lad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Did you, were you interested in table tennis before you, you found the youth club? Or did you ever play before or on Aldi no. or whatever? Or? Oh, I, yeah, I really, I was when I was playing, standing up, I heard that London won the bid for 2012 Paralympics and Olympics on the radio. This must have been 2008, 2009 sort of time. And I heard they'd won the bid and I really wanted to be a Paralympian. I really wanted to play in the games. And that was my goal ever since. I went back home and said to my mum, I'm going to be a professional tennis player. And back then we Googled it and there was literally no disabled professional tennis players. It wasn't a thing. And my mum backed me. She was like, okay, we'll see what we can do. And going to the local club, it was £2.50 a session to go and play. And my mum sacrificing loaves of bread, pints of milk. Uh, I remember tearing up saying, can I play, but I've got no money or like doing serves on my own. And to be fair, Halton Tilton's club are really good, really supported me with that sort of stuff and, and helped me through it and stuff. So, yeah, the goal for me was to be a Paralympian. It, it was It's a bit strange talking about it now, looking back, because it was never to be Paralympic champion. It was never to be British champion or that. It was to be a Paralympian. My sole purpose was to be the guy on the telly, not watching the telly. That was literally what was driving me and, and everything like that. So, yeah, it's, it's been a crazy old journey, but I didn't even know table tennis was a thing until I found it when I was 10, really. At what point do you go, like, I want to be a Paralympian and then I want to be the best Paralympian yeah. and I want to win all the titles is it as soon as you step foot into it. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that, like, yeah, it's one of the things where I just got bit by, like, I call it a tail tennis bug. So I'll be, I was at a kid at 12 hitting the ball against the wall. I mean, at midnight, annoying my mum, keeping her up. Do you know what I mean? Like, or just practicing my shots in school, looking at an absolute weirdo because I'm just like shadowing my tail tennis shots and stuff. It just took over my life, just completely obsessed with it and gave me that sort of purpose. So, and from then on, I watched players on YouTube. There was a guy called Tommy from Norway who, He's the best player in the world. And uh, I used to idolise him, watch videos of him and, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm lucky enough that Tommy's one of my best mates now. We, we play around the world in uh, in team events and stuff. So, yeah, it's come full circle in that sort of sense. But it's just given me an absolute drive. And now I've become a Paralympian playing in Rio was, was the dream come true. I'm, I'm refocused now. I'm, I'm winning the best medals I can do and winning them big world championships and, and more British titles. I've not lost in six years in England, but it still motivates me to, to win the next titles and not let anyone beat me. That's the way I'm, I'm focusing now. Is just trying to be the best athlete I can be, really. Yeah. Was, was, was there ever any times when you thought, when you ever thought to yourself, like, there's no way I can do this, or if you'd always just been 
completely driven yeah. and I'm making this happen no matter what. Um, I think my mindset's been completely driven, but there's been a lot of obstacles in my way. I think, um, as I say, growing up, we, we literally had no money. So when I first got my first GB trial, um, they said, oh, I think it must have been about 14. They said, oh, come to Sheffield um, for the week. Oh, for the weekend, sorry. We'll have a look at you. You might get into our development team. You might not, but we'll have a look. And my mum was ringing up credit people and trying to save and all sorts. And she sat me down on the Thursday and said, look, mate, we can't can't afford the train fare. They were offering expenses to go up and down, but you can't get expenses if you haven't got the money to pay out in the first place. So she sat down and said, look, we can't afford the 25 quid oh, like train fare, let alone a hotel for the weekend and blah, blah. So... Fast forward comes to Friday. I'm not home at three o'clock from school. And she rings me and says, where are you? And I said, I'm at the train station. And she was fuming. <laughs> like, and I jumped on a train at the age of 30, uh, 14, 15, jumped on a train, hid in the toilet for two hours and got myself to Sheffield uh, because I wanted to get the trial. Do you know what I mean? Just like doing mad stuff like that. Just and thinking back, it's crazy. If I had a kid, I'd fucking leather them. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things. But, <laughs> but it's just, I just remember doing it because my, my heart was set on getting Sheffield because it gets Sheffield. That's my opportunity to earn a few bob for my family. That's my opportunity to try, try and make something of myself. And that's what I sort of seen it as. And, and luckily I got myself into the, to the pathway team or the development team is what they call it now. And uh, I was there for six years and then I was traveling back and two um, on weekends and, my mum, once you get one expenses back, you can pay it out. But some weeks we, we couldn't. So I used to sit on the train and tell the conductor my story and just say, look, lad, I've got no money. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to kick a guy in a wheelchair off a train? Like, what are you going to do? Some of them do, some of them don't. So like strangers over here, yeah, and you'd see your GB kit and ask her and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, been through the mill, lad. But six years later, I got myself in the performance team and then 18, I moved to Sheffield and uh, been there ever since, lived with students. My first contract from UK Sport was for seven and a half grand, and I thought I was like Floyd Mayweather. Thought I had all the money. Do you know what I mean? Like I was enough to pay me student rent and a few drinks on a weekend, and I was absolutely buzzing. I was making a living out of table tennis. And that's what I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, I mean now I don't make it. I'm, I make just above minimum wage now. But uh, I'm I'm made up for doing what I'm doing. I'm so thankful in the position I am doing that, and I travel around the world. I've only ever travelled outside of of England really apart from table tennis uh, once I think to Ibiza when I was about 18 with my mates so um, and I've been lucky enough to travel like most continents I've been to most countries in the world like with table tennis so I'm so thankful at what it has given me but it has took me a hell of a lot of journey to get there so yeah it's been mad massive commitment isn't it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah except by the sounds of it lads it's not all yeah, fun it's and games yeah I'm, I'm curious are the rules different for standard and Paralympian uh, no, so it's exactly the same. The only difference we have is that you can't save wide to a wheelchair player. So the white lines on the side of the table, you just you can save short as long as the ball doesn't go off the side. But in the rally, it's fair game. So I compete to quite high level in able-bodied matches as well. Before I left um, to move to Sheffield, I was ranked number five in Cheshire, able-bodied. So I can compete to a good level, able-bodied. Obviously, when it gets to you, get to like your, your top levels, movement's an issue. But like skill level-wise, I'm, I'm up there with the top players. I train with uh, the junior England team sometimes able-bodied and get good sessions is good for both of us. So, yeah, I'm definitely up there with it. And it's it's quite it's one of the few sports that you can play disabled and able-bodied. I can say to my mates who are in a game, and nothing really changes. So it's yeah, it's really good sport in that sort of sense. You just buzz off your mates when you play them. <laughs> oh, it's boss, yeah. One of, the, one of the best exhibitions I did, because I go around and do exhibitions and talks and stuff. I got, got asked to do an exhibition in uh, Paddington Train Station, London. Uh, uh, Waterloo, sorry, Waterloo Train Station in London, like peak time, Saturday afternoon, people travelling about, and he just put me on a table in the middle, sat me there and just said, come and play me, more or less. He's got people in to play me. 
And no one knew I was. No one literally knew that I was Paralympian. I was professional. It was my job. And you'd get these kids and trackies running around going, oh, I'll beat you. I used to play in the youth club. I can do all them man spins and all that. And I just batted them. And all the mates are like laughing and all that. And it, honestly, it's one of the best experiences I've seen because you get people coming up thinking about, because everyone's got an experience of table tennis. Everyone's played at some point, whether that be a youth club or in the park, or someone's played table tennis at some point in life and think the boss because they're best in the mates group. But when you play like a professional, it's a different game, isn't it? You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, for disability perception, that was an incredible thing to do because people didn't realise like the level that people can play at. So, yeah, to embarrass people in front of the mates is one of my favourite things to do, really. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be Jay if you, if you played an exhibition game. That would be him. I'm competitive for mine. I'm not like, I get in taxis and they, they ask me what I do and all that and they go, oh, can you do all them mad spins like a Chinese? I'm like, yeah, I can do do something like that. Yeah, like, like just, I just don't get involved. Like, it's, not, it's not involved, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned, obviously, we mentioned at the top of the show, you're the 10-time British champion. Yeah. What, what was that? What was it like winning that first one? What was that feeling like? Yeah, the first the first one was mad. So um, I haven't lost for six years now. But the way we so I'm in the the classification system in table tennis. So we have class one to eleven in table tennis for disability classes. So class one is like your most disabled wheelchair players who are who are, we call them tetraplegic or quadriplegic or paralysed from like the chest down. Really, got no hand function. They strap the bat into the hand and all that sort of stuff. Class five is what I am, which is basically um, able bodied sitting down. So I've got full core, full arm movements, full everything. I just can't walk. So I, I won the British title in class five, um, yeah, six years ago now. And the Open was the big one where all the classes play, all, all the things. And there was a guy called Scott Robinson who who was like the, the good class five before he retired. And I was sort of getting up to his level and he was on the edge of retirement and all that sort of stuff. And I never quite beat him. But as soon as I got that first British title, it was mad because... I'd always been the guy chasing, and then I looked behind me the next year, and I'm like, "Oh fuck, I'm there." Oh, can you swear on this? Sorry, it was just. Swear. I was like, "Oh no!" Oh. <laughs> I was like, "Oh fuck!" Like I'm, I'm the guy that they're chasing now. I'm the one they want to beat because I've got that older ass trophy, and then, and the whole room sort of changed to like, "Oh yeah, you're the lad who uh, beats not the underdog anymore." So uh, it was a strange experience, but it was it was mad to sort of get to that bit and to to show people that this might be a viable career option. This might be something I can do, and. Uh, I've, I've struggled, I've been quite open in the public eye about my mental health struggles and, and what I've been through with depression and suicidal attempts and stuff like that. And the British title, uh, getting there was definitely a, a big, big thing in my life of, of, of realising things to myself and, and pushing off my goals. So yeah, it's, I definitely, I'm proud to be British. So um, to be there, hold the British title, doesn't matter how many it is, I'm uh, really happy to do it. So. Was was aiming towards something like that, something that got you out them dark times and yeah, you know, yeah, massively, yeah. Hard and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, as I said, growing up in, with my mum having mental health problems, you you don't necessarily the impact that has on people when you're a kid. I remember going into my mum's room, um, and she's crying her eyes out, and I say, "Mum, what's the matter?" And she'll be like, "Oh, I'm watching a sad film," or with a with a bipolar when she has manic phases and she's bought four wardrobes because she couldn't remember the color of it, or and then she's skinned for the next month because she's got no perception of it. It's just it was uncontrollable, and that's just the way you grow up. And then I remember going to my mate's house, going. Oh, your house isn't cluttered full of like stuff, or like, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, you've got like a shower that's got proper running water, or you no, know, stuff like that. Like, it, just mad stuff like that, and growing up and, and seeing it. And I always felt different than everyone else. I always felt like I was a different person. I always felt like my world was a lot darker than everyone else's. And um, when I first turned professional, I was 18, I was buzzing, but then it got to Rio and uh, I qualified for Rio. 
And the qualification process for table tennis is we have to be a certain rank in the world to qualify. And I was going through my darkest times trying to qualify for Rio. I, I dropped from number 12 in the world to number 20 odd. And I think I needs to be like number 10 to qualify. So it got to a stage where I was two years in and my coach said, look, we funded you to all these tournaments. You, we know you're young, but at the end of the day, your job's to qualify. And you're not doing it, more or less. So he said, you've got two more tournaments. If you don't qualify, then we might have to drop your funding. That would be my job, my well, career, my wages, the lock gone from what I'd already uh, done. So I accumulated down to, uh, I played the China Open and I had, to, I had to win the competition effectively. So I played in the semifinals and in table tennis, we play the best of five. So we play, uh, yeah, up to 11 points, five sets. So I was 2-1 down in sets and 10-9 down in points. So if I lose one more point, I'm a goner. Like I've not qualified, not done it. And I managed to uh, to turn it round and win the match and qualify. And uh, it was them sort of times that shaped me as a person. But I remember when I qualified and, and I was elated and stuff, I remember sitting in me thing just thinking, I fucking hate myself. Like I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I got to a stage in my in my uni place and in my room where I turned all the mirrors around in my room. I covered all the door reflections up. I couldn't face myself because I absolutely hated myself and I didn't know what it was. And I, I went through like a, a breakdown really when I was about 19, 20 of... Um, I went going to training. I was turning up late. I was going in the same clubber. I was stinking. Like I, I was crying every session. I didn't know what was happening. And luckily we had a psychologist on board for the um for the Tailters team. And he said, Look, what, what's the matter? And I used to give excuses saying my washing machine broke or the tram was late or anything like this. And it got to a point where they were like, No, we what what's up? Like what we can see there's a change in here. And yeah, I just broke down crying, saying I absolutely hate myself. I, I can't I don't want to be here anymore. I've thought I've suicidal thoughts every day. And and from there, I was lucky enough to to get the help I needed. And I've been through countless amount of therapies. And even around around town of Rio, probably three, four months before the Paralympic Games, I remember sitting in my bedroom and I rang my mum saying, can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. This is this is the end. So I think I had tablets in my hand. And I remember just crying my eyes out uncontrollably, trying to take these tablets. And my roommate luckily ran in and took them off me. And I went to the hospital and all that sort of stuff. And that's happened three times in my life, just just going through them dark places. And mental health is one of them crazy things because it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter whether you're a professional athlete or a bin man or whatever you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money you've got and anything like that. It's it, it's such a crazy thing. And I was just so lucky that I had someone there to reach out to me. And, and luckily now I'm in such a better place better place like I met my girlfriend Lucy four years ago she's an absolute godsend because I was in a in a state when I met her she was like I was more or less Neanderthal like when I met her I was literally living on my own pot noodles in my undies I used to eat off paper plates because when we asked doing the washing up like literally I was I was feral more or less so like she, student. <laughs> yeah I was more or less a student but the problem is I was like 24 and I was full-time athlete that's the problem <laughs> but like but now I'm I'm, I'm a different person and I just want to go out there now and now to feel like I'm mental health's never gonna there's no cure for it. I'm still taking tablets and still seeing my therapist and stuff and I, and I'm really helpful for that. But I just want to go out there and not a lot of athletes come out with mental health problems when they're still competing. A lot of athletes come out when they're retired and say, Look, when I was playing in football, I had depression, but no one says I am a footballer, I am a table tennis player, and I happen to have mental health problems. And I was the one of the first few that came out and said, Oh, I do have these problems, but I'm still one of the best players in the world like look how I'm dealing with it and that was what I sort of wanted to do and I'm using table tennis as a vehicle to raise awareness of that because it is such a silent killer I've been there myself and and I think actually looking back now as I feel like I'm in a totally different place I feel like my table tennis has improved because I've been through that because if I lose a point in the table it's not life and death because I've been in life and death situations to put it bluntly it doesn't feel like I'm it's the end of the world 
because I know what the end of the world feels like. I know what it feels like to try and jump. I remember once, it's, it's funny looking back now, but I get the tram to from training. And I was that depressed one day. I remember sitting in front of a, a on the tram stop and I'm going, all right, I'm going to jump in front of this tram now. Getting ready like that, fucking pumped to jump in front of this tram. And I go and the tram just stops because the tram stopped. I didn't even think. I was like, oh yeah, it just stopped on it. Like I didn't even, I just got on it and went home. Like, but I was just ready to, you know what I mean? Like it's one of them things that looking back, it's absolutely crazy. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel like I'm talking about myself, but going through that is, it doesn't feel that half as bad on the table. I think it definitely has shaped me to be the fighter I am on and off the table because I've been through so much and I'm just so thankful I've got that foundation in place now and I'm on the other, other side of it. So if anyone's listening who, who's going through stuff, just reach out, just literally speak to someone. It doesn't have to be therapist. It doesn't have to be um, a big cry for help. Just just check in, say I'm not I'm not doing all right. Because everyone has ups and downs. You boys will know. We, everyone's been through ups and downs. Not everyone has to be suicidal or depressive to, to have mental health uh, issues. Mental health, everyone has it. Everyone has physical health. If you broke your arm, you go to the hospital. If you weren't feeling very well in your head, you, you should speak to someone. It should be the normal thing to do because mental health is something that everybody has and everyone has ups and downs. I still have ups and downs. I'm not perfect still, but that's life. Like, you know what I mean? Life's a roller coaster, as Ronan Keaton said. So I think... Uh, You've just got to reach out and talk to people because everyone's going through the same boat and you're not alone. I think that's one of the biggest things I can't, I can't stress enough is that's one of the biggest things I say is you're just not alone. So, yeah. Quality statement, lad. I think it's amazing how open you are and even, you, even yeah. that way you're laughing about you're about to jump in front of a, a train or a tram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes, as the saying is, if you don't laugh, you cry. Absolutely, and you better, yeah. Haven't you? yeah. Going yeah. on about, like, you know, the thoughts you've had and the, yeah. being, being that dark, yeah, the pressure put on you to, yeah. to qualify for Rio. What was yeah. the moment like when you qualified and yeah. that ball's at the floor and you, you don't get yeah. you into Rio? What's that like? Yeah, I, I remember it so clearly. I was in China and it was snowing for some reason. I don't know why it was snowing in China, but I didn't know China <laughs> had snow. I just thought China was off. So I turned up in a week's fill of t shirt and shorts. Like, literally, didn't have any, any other club with me at all. So I thought China's off. So, like, it was snowing. I remember it, looking outside my bedroom window. My mum doesn't know what's going on. And I ring my mum and I, I, I get on the phone, right? I'm crying my eyes out to get to my hotel room. I ring my mum and uh, I say, mum, I've made it. I'm going to be a Paralympian after all these years. And she goes, why are you fucking ringing me from China with your phone bill? No, she didn't really. <laughs> 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 so I rang her and I said, oh, mum, I've, I've qualified. I'm going to be a Paralympian. And we both just absolutely broke down. I just, she didn't even, she didn't even cheer or anything. I could just hear her sobbing. And it still chokes me now to think about it because I just remember hearing that sort of, I don't know if it was relief or pain or whatever, but we both been through so much. Like I've been through my mum struggling with them and health to air, sacrificing food and bread for me to go to a tilting session, for, for me to do art, put her through hell, jumping on trains and stuff because she believed in me to be a Paralympian. And it finally happened and it's just a mad experience and it's something that I'll, I'll never forget is that phone call ringing my mum in China and just just pouring my heart out to her and saying, I'm finally doing this. So... I think one thing when I'm, when I'm talking about the health problems as well, a lot of people say to me, oh, it's, it's table tennis, the pressure. Is it because it's playing table tennis? Is that what made you think? But for me, I I find table tennis that outlet for me. I find that's the reason why I got up in the morning. That was the reason why I was accountable to get to training. And I feel like I was an, an artist. I feel like I'm going out and portraying my actual self when I'm on the table. I'm a big I'm a big wrestling fan, like a big uh, WWE fan. Yeah, no, it's not real. I'm 25, but like I'm a big I'm a big. Sorry, I'm Mate, I love the wrestling. And me and the missus, we travel up and down the country watching wrestling shows, and I sort of see that arena when I play tables. Is I'm playing a character. 
if I'm not feeling well behind that curtain, when I go out there, I'm trying to portray this Jack, this confident world number eight tail to this player. This player that's not lost in, in God knows how long in the country. It doesn't matter how I feel because that ball's not asked how I feel. It's, the opponent's not asked how I feel and thing because I'm trying to portray who I can be. So that's me going on stage. That's me being an actor sometimes. And that's what I try and do. And if I didn't have the outlet, God knows what I'd do because it's... Uh, yeah, it's something that I'm I'm really thankful I've got and I've found that avenue to sort of express myself in that way because I can't draw, I can't sing, I can't dance. So table tennis is my sort of way of expressing myself as much as I can. So, yeah. You're not too bad, are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm doing all right, matey. Fair, so I can't complain. <laughs> would you Would you kind of say that getting to Rio then was like as much for you as it was for you? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I would say is that I'm basically like the lead singer of a massive orchestra, like a band. So there's people behind me that have helped me who don't get any credit. So I remember when I was a kid in Witness trying to get around tournaments, because what I've left out here is that you've got to travel around the country to play tournaments and all that sort of stuff. There's people like Joe Ty, who was just a local league player in Witness, who, who realised that I was skinned and couldn't get around. And he used to take me to tournaments. He used to drive me at bloody three o'clock in the morning to London or just off his own back because he, he wanted me to, to achieve. And there's loads of people I can rattle off a name of people that have helped me so much in my career. And I'm just a... I'm the lead singer of this mad band that I've, I've created and I'm just lucky that I'm the one who gets the credit for it. But it's definitely an accumulation of, of me getting to Rio and although I didn't get a medal, to be a Paralympian, um, yeah, it's such a massive achievement for me and my family and I'm lucky enough now I can... I mean, I mean, full disclosure, I earn £14,000 a year from, from UK Sports, which I'm, I'm eternally grateful for. That's that's all I pay me bills and stuff. But I'm able to give my mum a few bob now she needs it. I'm able to, to help out my little sister and all that sort of stuff. And that's all I wanted from, from table tennis. And to be a Paralympian and to be able to be self-sufficient and, and make something of myself and feel like I'm getting there and, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a family thing as well. I'm just lucky enough to get the credit for it and do things like this. So, yeah, it's mad. Unbelievable. What was what was the experience like in Rio when you were over there? Like it must have been yeah. once life changing. Oh, it, I, it's mad. Like you know when you watch films and something like Dreams Come True, it's it's better than that. Like I, I, don't, I honestly don't have to explain it. So we got on the team bus. So you do all your first of all you go to like all your kit fittings and you go to your uh, your openings and your your all that sort of stuff. And you go to Westminster to meet everyone and, and all that keeper. But we went to uh, the team bus. So we go into the airport. And it's about four in the morning. And I'm tapping everyone, going, I'm going to Paralympic, going to Paralympic. I remember the psychologist turning around and going, Jack, I know you're excited, but everyone's getting pissed off. You're just like talking. <laughs> it's like four in the morning on the team bus going to the airport. Because <laughs> all these other people on the team have been to Paralympics. So I was absolutely buzzing. And I think for me, like, I was a Paralympian for that two weeks. I was living in a bubble. I was in the athlete village. I was doing mad stuff on Channel 4 and I was on the last leg and I was just meeting some incredible people and my performance um, wasn't great because I played a Brazilian first match and I, and I was like, oh my God, I'm live streaming on six different countries here and I'm on that massive telly in front of me and I can see my own face, 20 foot <laughs> in front of me, in front of a crowd of 5,000 people that don't want me to win. Do you know what I mean? Like, so like playing, it was a mad experience playing a Brazilian and I didn't get out of my group. I didn't play well, but I needed that experience in order for me to go to Tokyo and I would smash it because I know what it's like. No, you can have all these seminars and, and Zoom calls and all that stuff that we do to get prepared. The best preparation to, to win a Paralympic medal is to play in the Paralympic Games because you literally can't you can't fathom how much it is to do. Like even I remember going through the crowds and just getting mobbed by mobbed by people, just getting pictures and autographs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, security yanking the back of my chair, getting out of crowds, going breathe. Like it was just mad experiences, like just going through it and 
yeah, I think that I'll definitely use that going in, going ahead, and not going like headless chicken and going in for performance, not just to go. Oh my god, I'm not on my telly. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I think I'm over that now. It's been a few years of me, of me being in the public eye at the moment. I was like, I was like, I've got blue tick on Twitter. Look at me, yeah. I've got no followers, but I've got a blue tick. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's one of those things. So, yeah, I think going into Tokyo, I'm I'm definitely better prepared because I've had that experience in Rio and. It was it was uh, such a surreal experience and something I will absolutely never forget. But I'm looking now to obviously take medals and hopefully you boys let me back on the podcast. If I do bring back a medal, you never know. I might come back on. Come back whenever, lad. <laughs> <lad. laughs> Thanks, mate. I'm going to yeah. put a light on because I'm disappearing into the abyss here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say something, but... Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> luckily, he noticed on his own. Back in the room. There you go. I look better than his life, but, you know... <laughs> what's, the, what's the preparation like for Tokyo Tokyo now yeah this this year's obviously been a mad one with the pandemic and stuff so this, the start of lockdown I was buzzing because I had a week off training I was like oh my body's killing I've got Boris has said he got two weeks off here do you know what I mean I was made <laughs> up but then so so basically for Tokyo I was safely qualified so I had to be top eight in the world I was sitting at number seven buzzing 50 points into the qualification period um, as coaches said, I don't ask to play any more tournaments because I was more or less done. We've got one in the buffer just in case, but um, the guy below me is 55 points and to earn that in one competition, very difficult. So the, the pandemic comes along and I'm going to qualified, just wait till things play out. And there was one tournament left that got played in Poland that I didn't play, but the guy below me played. Uh, the world number one played as well. His, his chair broke on the flight. He still played the tournament for some reason. He lost to the guy below me, who ended up making enough points to go above me in on the on the ranking list. So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I'm only four, I'm four points behind here, but I've got this tournament in the buffet. He's not going to it to make four points up. I need to beat two duffers in the group. Do you know what I mean? I just need to I just need to get two points for me to to, to go to Tokyo. I was fine. I was going to the Italian Open. And then the pandemic does and hits and then they shut everything and they go, okay, everyone who's qualified is qualified. We're not playing any more tournaments. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm out of the qualification. I'm not qualified for Tokyo. So the position I'm in now is that they have a qualification tournament. So luckily for Tokyo, what they brought in was they have one la- a last chance competition, more or less. So if you win that competition, you go into Tokyo. There's one ticket left, more or less. So that's getting played in June this year. But um, I'm number one seed. I'm feeling really confident going into it. I've beat everyone that's, that's entered it. Obviously, I've got to play well in the day and, and handle all that and stuff, but I'm just training my ass off trying to get there. And it, it was such a surreal thing for this year because last March, um, I didn't know my ass, my elbow. I was waking up at like two in the afternoon, going to sleep at seven in the morning. I didn't know what was going on because I didn't have no structure. I didn't, have, I didn't have a clue how the well, just like everyone else, I didn't have a clue what was going on. It was unprecedented. I remember ringing our Chris, my brother, and he's so relaxed, like literally, something the welcome will fire, and he just ringed me like, oh, I'll be all right, lad. don't worry. Like, he's one of the people. So like, I rang him, and he was like, what, what are you stressing for? This is the new normal. He said, this, this might go on for years. This is the new normal. Get used to it. I thought, all right, what can I do? So uh, I ended up doing like ab circuits in the, in the house and trying to structure my day. And luckily, the, the squad were able to give us t- uh, tables that got delivered to our house. So we had tables and tables in the house. But I live in a, in a small flat in Sheffield. I had uh, about a foot and a half each side in my whole living room for this table. So uh, for, for six months, more or less, me and the missus are eating our dinner off the table. I'm climbing underneath it to watch the telly. Like I'm doing me, me gym workouts under the, under the table. Like uh, we lived in a bedroom for six months because I was trying to train on this table. And, and I'm lucky that I've got Lucy that supports that. But just mad stuff like that. And I think it's really shown me how appreciative I, I am of 
being able to train because I'm in a position now where we've got a purpose-built full-time hall in Sheffield and the Institute of Sport. We're spoiled. Do you know what I mean? We've got the best flooring, best tables, best coaches. We've got all the all the best like posters up around the, the lot. But then when that's all taken away from it, how can you still improve? And that's what I really took from it is it doesn't matter where I am. I can still try and improve some way. So I was trying to fitness. I was trying to lose weight. I was trying to work on my serves because I know what to play against and all that sort of stuff. So it's been a mad year. I'm not going to lie, it's been a mad year, but uh, I'm just looking at me able to train now and I feel like I'm making gains. The only thing I'm struggling with at the moment is I haven't got a clue how good my opponents are, which, so it's absolutely driving me to be better because it's like, right, if, say if your boss are making cakes and you thought, I'm going to go on the Bake Off and you thought my cake's a boss, but then you go on the Bake Off and Paul Ollie would go, shit that. Like, uh, you don't know that shit because you think it's boss because <laughs> no one's judged it and no one's judged my table tennis for two years. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I don't know how good anyone else's cake is. Yeah. So that's why I'm sort of seeing it is of like, I don't know where my level at. So I'm just hell bent on trying to get my level as best I can. And hopefully it's still better than everyone else in the world and I can get that plane ticket for Tokyo. So yeah, hopefully June when it comes around, I'll be uh, I'll be playing in a competition. Maybe supporting you, lad. Thanks, yeah. mate. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, we'll get, like you say, we'll get you back on when you've got a uh, gold medal round in it. That sounds good, mate. That sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, so move, moving on to the Reds, um, yeah. what what was your first memory of, of like watching Liverpool? My all my memories of of, of Liverpool, I, I don't know what my first one is because it's always been surrounded by me. All my family are Reds, obviously born in Anfield. My, my dad's a season ticket holder. All my dad's side are family are Reds. It's only my nan that's a blue. Like my nan, funny enough, she she lives facing the uh, the cop, which is a blue, like in shelter accommodation. So <laughs> she's always she's a bit of blue as well. But uh, apart from that, all my other family are Reds. So it's just something you're born into. And I just remember watching it. My, my probably. My, Biggest memory I've got is at the age of 10, the Champions League final, 2005, is probably my, my biggest memory of, of thinking about it because uh, my mum had a buys you view telly. I don't know if you remember them, but you like, you'd put a pound in, you used to get like an hour. You, so you'd pay off the telly by putting the pounds in the side of the telly. The so father would collect the money. Yeah, yeah, the bloke used to come collect the money and if he didn't turn up, he'd have to jump behind the couch. Like, this one of the things he used to do. But so I remember it coming round and we lived in a rough bit of witness and there was kick-off outside, there's police flying about, something to do with a petrol bomb. I don't know what was going on, but I remember just sitting there, you know, I've been walking forward to this in months now, Champions League final, they pull her in it. And then we go 3 0 down. I'm just a 10 year old, just absolutely crying my eyes. I was in my little seat thinking, oh no, I've wasted me quid. I've been saving up for this. I'm 3 0 down. We've got one. <laughs> The first goal goes in and it goes, oh, at least we've not been battered. Second goal goes in straight away and, oh my God, we've got a chance here. I remember just like, obviously we won and when I'm doing all that, but I just remember cheering around the living room and mum's like, oh, what's going on? I said, we won, we won the Champions League. Goes, that's nice, isn't it? I was like, oh, what? <laughs> we won the Champions League, just 3-0 down, like she just was going to clue. So that's one of the memories of, of just being absolute massive red and uh, being an awfully witness of me being scouts, like there was a lot of United fans, a lot of Liverpool fans, so there was a lot of bands to fly around school and, just going in like 10 men do won the Champions League and that's one of my, my biggest memories thinking the club for me is more than just a football club I think uh, you boys will know as well that it's they talk about the, the 12th man in the pandemic and, and how the the crowds are not there and stuff but I think Anfield's an absolute fortress for that like I don't know any other ground that it, it, it's such a big difference no I've one talks it. about it enough like people I've are saying it. like oh Liverpool away form is not good I'm like well, it's just a different bit of grass there's no there's no fans like what how, how different can it be because I, I've been at Anfield and the chills that go through it there's no a chance that you'd want to be in front of that crowd if you're not a red I don't know don't care who you are you don't want to be in front of that crowd I remember going to the uh, quarterfinals when we played City. It must be in 2008. I was I went to the match and uh, Sterling warming up on a touch uh, touchline straight in front of us. 
and the and the abuse he's getting, or like people screaming at him and stuff. And I was in the disabled bit. This is funny bit as well. So there's a block behind me, just absolutely red at rage, shouting stuff at Sterling. And he runs up to Sterling, gets his wallet out, chucks a fiver, and goes, "Yeah, you money grabbing bastard!" Chucks a fiver, and he looks at me and goes, "Oh shit, I've just lost a fiver!" Like they're just like, he's going rage, just like you know, just a passion of Liverpool fans you don't get anywhere else. And luckily enough, traveling around the world and everyone talking about Liverpool, it's something to be. We're famous for it. It's an absolute. It's a famous ground, a famous pitch. So I think one thing that's not talked about the pandemic and coming from a, a sports point of view is how different that must be as an athlete to not play in front of a crowd. You look at players like Milner or who've been playing for years and years and years in front of a crowd, have been through the same routines of going to the training ground, training with these players, going on a team bus, blah, blah, blah. That must have all changed. And for me, it's all changed. We're training in smaller groups where we're, put, we're not playing in tournaments. We're not allowed to sit with our... That must have changed for the Liverpool players. And, and you can see it because to go from something that we had, which was so good, to not be there at all, it must be so tough and, and the money's irrelevant. Everyone goes on a footballer to pay for it. It doesn't matter because your routine has changed as an athlete, a highly tuned athlete. Your routine has completely changed and, and I, can, I feel for them because it must be so hard. It must be so hard to know what it was like when a crowd is full. arm feel to score and there's, there's literally like clap, clap, clapping. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's mad. So, yeah. You, you've literally just summed up like one of the discussions we had on, on a previous podcast and I was, oh, really? I was with you saying people... Don't realise how much difference our fans are to other fans, oh, and it's, what it would be like yeah. for a player playing in front of nobody as yeah, opposed yeah. to one fans. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it must be a massive difference. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you: Did you go to many games in that as a kid? And- yeah, so I, I think my dad took me to one game. I must have been about. It was when Gary McAllister scored against Everton a free kick. And I had, uh, he was carrying me in his arms. So I must have been about, I must have been about seven because I was on my feet, but obviously he took me in the stands and stuff. I remember him jumping about and I had, I had one of them um, horns when you blow and he jumped up and I caught my lip and it was bleeding and he had to go and get paper. It was one of them mad stories. But he, um, so I remember going as a kid, but then obviously going up wanting to go to match to get, because they get a ticket as a disabled person is an absolute nightmare, not just at Liverpool. But any any premiership ground is a nightmare. So I tried to get a season ticket, and they said if you weren't on the list before 2011, there's no chance of getting a season ticket because the list's full. So as soon as someone drops out, the list from 2011 just carries on. So I won't be getting a season ticket until God knows when. And, and to go and get a match, you've got to you've obviously got to go through your doctor's stuff, show your blue badge, and get it, get it so that you're obviously a disabled fan. But then you go into a ballot. So I could say I want to go to a match. You can't pick your match. You get just given a match that you can go to. So yeah, I was lucky yeah. enough that one of one of my mates um, who's in a wheelchair, he got a season ticket. He had it for years, and uh, he needed a carer. And um, I went as his carer, more or less, and just bunged him out the price of the ticket. So that's how I used to go to matches, really. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't know how it works. You both in wheelchairs, used the carer, but uh, he was in electric <laughs> wheelchair, so he looked more disabled than me. So I was like, yeah, you can't discriminate against me. But uh, <laughs> but like, it, so I went to matches with him and just done that sort of thing. And and, and unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, so I've not been for since 2018 now. But um, yeah, just a mad experience of of going through the tunnel in the ground. And after Rio as well, I was lucky enough to get invited to a Liverpool match VIP. So I went to Legends Lounge and uh, got invited by Liverpool to go in and, and meet some of the players. And I went on at half-time and give a little speech in front of the cop and stuff. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's mad. And Jürgen Klopp came over. So it was me. There was, there was three Paralympians. There was me. There was another lad who got medals. I was only went out a medal. Obviously, I'm quite, an, I'm quite a well-known Liverpool fan, so they asked me to go as well. And Klopp comes running over as the players are like coming out for half-time. And he goes, oh... Uh, can we get a picture? I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, can you get your medal out? And I was like, 
not got one last <laughs> time. <laughs> it was really, really awkward. And he went, no, nah, I don't know if it's all right. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. Mate. So there's a picture somewhere on Klopp's phone of me and him, just, just like, because he's still got a picture. And he's like, just oh, mad gosh. experiences. And I remember Sturridge running over, saying hello. And yeah, just incredible. And I remember... Um, and my dad was sat next to Alan Hansen all match. I took my dad with me and, and the Legends Lounge basically get a three course meal. Everyone's suited and booted and all that. And uh, Legends walked around. He was paying Legends to walk around. So it was like Gary McAllister there. I think Ian Rush was there. Um, Alan Hansen, a lot was there. So we sat and everyone and lucky enough, Alan Hansen sat next to my dad. So, and he's given me dad shit all match. Like, listen to all the banter. Just like, down me, uh, Henderson had a free kick on the edge of the box. And my dad goes, it's going to go top ends here. And he's scoring. Alan goes, Nah, it's not. It's going in the crowd here. He can't score for me. And my dad's going, nah, I'll be scoring. Henderson Spoonies it in the crowd. They got in the crowd. Alan turns to my dad and goes, and that's why you win a match of the day, dickhead. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> my dad. <laughs> my dad is like, I'm using that anecdote in the pub for the rest of my life. Just like, honestly, it's one of the most surreal days I've, I've ever had. It's just, uh, yeah, just mad. So I'm lucky. I'm thankful for Liverpool Football Club for uh, inviting me and doing stuff like that. So the club's been a massive part of my life. As I'm sure it has for you boys as well. It's not just it's not just following a sport. It's a it's a life it's a life uh, long thing to do, isn't it? And if you live and be the club, it's it's a lot different than just watching it as an armchair fan. So yeah, oh, definitely. definitely. It ruins my weekend when we don't win. Fortunately, <laughs> we win quite yeah. often, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, ruined a few weekends this season, like but, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we won't go too much into that. Uh, who's your favourite player as a kid? Favourite player as a kid is, it has to be Gerard. Cliche Gerard, but I remember like Milan Barosh, loving Barosh and uh, El Hadj Juf and all them sort of players and, and growing up watching it. Yeah, I don't know why. I just thought his hair was dead cool. I could, he was terrible. Don't get me wrong, he was bad. I used, uh, to, hate, I used to hate Jimmy Triori. Like, I don't know why. My dad used to call him Jimmy the Clown, like when he, when he was trying to do stuff. You know what? Everyone <laughs> hated Jimmy Priori, and then he done that. He got off the line in Istanbul. Yeah, right? yeah. And everyone loved him. He'd walk around forever, Liverpool. Now yeah. he's a legend. Yeah, I remember uh, Jersey Dudek obviously being a hero in Champions League final. I remember they come out with a song, "Do the Dudek." I don't remember him coming out. I remember singing it around school all the time, like "Come on and do the do that." Yeah, like, all all that coming out and all, yeah. So I think yeah, obviously Gerald's my favorite player, but yeah, I just idolised the team and uh, Sammy Hoopier as well. Used to love watching them just clear out headers and stuff. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, remember going on the tour when we won the Champions League, and yeah. there was a fella there with long, lovely hair, long black yeah. hair, and a blue cap on, and I turned out to my cousin, and he knocked me mad. We went me mad and died, and she was like. That's Milan Barros. And I meant it's not. I, was only, <laughs> yeah. I think it was 14. We just won the Champions League. Yeah. That's Milan Barros. And Milan Barros had come in the tour to look at the cup. And he what was just the there in his own clobber and that. And Mad, I've got a photo yeah. of him. I'm white as a sheep. Brilliant. I loved that one as a kid, mate. Oh, and oh yeah, yeah. On Eddie yeah. Kitt. And then when he become a rat and got off, yeah, and category, your main idols, yeah, aren't, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. But we, we've all made questionable decisions. I remember getting that, um, the red, re, not the red one, the yellow Reebok top from that season, oh, yeah, and got Morientes on the back after we turned him. <laughs> yeah, right. so Alonso as well. I used to love John Arna when John Arna used to just smash free kicks in. 
Do you remember when he broke Alan Smith's leg when, when, when he uh, mollied it? <laughs> like, I was like, get in. Like, you know, Liverpool <laughs> fans were staking the ambulance when he was on his way. Honestly, I used to get my auntie, my auntie Janet, to yeah. flip me fringe up. To let, to let the back ones as well, she flipped me fringe up and I'd score on the fields with three of my cousins and I'd have to chop out me and <laughs> It was only last week as well, that. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? Sometimes I'll spit a chewy out, though, and I do, I do play. I'll spit a chewy out and aim for the bin and kick it, and I'll shout Gerard. Gerard's still one and shout. Yeah, it always will be. I think it's just it's yeah, just something about it. you just got to shout it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. My head fell off here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, can you remember what you were doing for Istanbul? Yeah, I was in the house watching it, as I say, as a kid watching it, and uh, yeah, just waiting for ages doing it. And uh, yeah, just it was, it was what I've talked about this on another podcast, well, Liverpool podcast last week, and uh, just just having the, the buzzer on it because I'm one of them Liverpool fans. If we score one, we've got to score three before I know we're going to win. Like, it's one of them sort of things. So, we scored one, and I was like, oh, we scored one, yeah, two goals in after two minutes, and like, oh, we. That's smice it done. I want them well there. Do you know what I mean? We've got it, and you can see the the it draining out of that AC Milan squad because not only us, that squad that AC had was unbelievable. Crest That's one of the best teams in the world ever. It, it was unbelievable, and you could just see them shaking like a shitting dog. Like when the, when the ball's coming, do you know what I mean? Like it's coming round, and you can see the momentum just change. And obviously, being in sport now, I, I know how momentum works. Now you can use it in front, but you can just you could sense it watching it. And uh, yeah, I remember vividly just watching it and, and seeing how it goes and. Yeah, some absolutely mad experience when that third goal goes in and uh, the double save from Dudek and oh, Shevchenko God. missing the penalty. Uh, just absolutely, he couldn't make it up. If you wrote a story, you would not want to believe it. It's mad, like absolutely is mad. So, I That's went it. to every home game that season. Yeah. Every Champions League game as well. And my sister bought us two tickets in the AC Milan end for Istanbul. <laughs> Hell, yeah. And my mum wouldn't let me go. <laughs> so my sister went... <laughs> And was tanked up at half time, phoning me saying, We're going to win this, lad. Don't you worry about it. Said, yeah. I said to her, Listen, dickhead, get off my phone in a battle. Said to my dad at half time, This is going to be 7 0 Milan. This is yeah, yeah. completely embarrassing. And he went, Listen, yeah. support them, get behind them. And if they score within the first 10 minutes of the second yeah. half, you've got a chance. The Absolutely, first goal yeah. was the 54th minute, yeah. and by the 60th, yeah. it was 3 0. Yeah, you always remember it's that. We were like, really Rhythm and my granddad. Yeah, um, he's he's passed away now, but I yeah. always remember every time he gets to a final. Now I go and put ribbon on his grave because oh, every time yeah. Liverpool had the ball, the we'd lash yeah. ribbon on his head. He, he couldn't even yeah. watch the match. Yeah, I don't know if it's just Liverpool fans, but we seem to be so superstitious with stuff like that. Like my family's all exactly the same. So my nan, like on my other nan on my dad's side, she's in a massive red. She hasn't watched the game on telly for years because once she listened to it on the radio, we won. So ever since <laughs> she stays in the kitchen, listens to it on the radio. I swear to God, like, or is it mad? <laughs> or like I remember my dad uh, watching the match and it's something like he tapped my wheelchair three times and we scored. So like, every match he was like tapping me, you know, it's mad stuff like that. Yeah. Or, or he, he goes to match. So if you've got a pie at half time and someone's scoring in 10 minutes, he'd do it next week. And if it don't work, he'd try something else. Or like lucky undies. And I don't know whether any clubs are the same, but. Everyone I know is a, a big Liverpool fan that have, have these man superstitions. It's, yeah, it's mental. Yeah, just in our house, house, it's, um, in our house it's, if if someone scores and you've got to be in, you've got to stay in that position or whatever you yeah. do for the rest <laughs> yeah. of the game. Then if you if you were having a shit yeah. when we scored, you've got to go back and back. <laughs> <and I'm lucky. laughs> 
absolutely. But you're right. Yeah. I think I think it is only like Liverpool fans that, <laughs> that do weird shit like that. Um, yeah. But you know, it's what makes us unique, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how <clears throat> does? How, go on. Go on, Jay. Go no, on, go on, it's all right. No, it's all right. We're being too polite here, go. <laughs> go on, mate. I'm drinking now. He's drinking now. Fuck off. <laughs> so, how does how does Istanbul then compare for you with the night that we won the league? Yeah, I mean, the night that we won the league was bittersweet for me because it was one of them, didn't we? That I never thought it was going to happen until it actually happened. So we were lifting that cup and. There was two train of thoughts. I was buzzing that we won the league. I was buzzing that we'd done it. But to watch it in front of no crowd, to watch them do it, the, the fireworks of Boston display was boss. But I remember sitting there crying, like with tears up my eyes. My girlfriend's going, What are you crying for? I for the trophy. I was like, you, but you don't understand the experience that we've been through. We never, we haven't done it in God knows how long and all that sort of stuff. So I can just imagine what it would have been like on the cop and uh, just seeing how, what it would have been like and, and the stadium full and, and all that sort of stuff. And I do sort of wish Gerard's in the squad as well. Obviously, he wasn't. but it was one of the things that Istanbul, uh, we had the experience in front of the in front of the crowd, but I can't wait for us to lift the trophy in front of it in front of a full stadium because I think we will celebrate that league win just as much as the one that we get next time with the crowd because it felt like it was taken away from us a little bit. I feel like when it, when the football stopped, we were obviously in a boss position and we could only really lose it. That makes sense, but uh, yeah, it's it's a strange experience and to watch it. I was like, oh, I'm gutted for the players, you know, gutted for the players that they haven't got that experience, but. Yeah, to do it was mad and uh, United could shut off for a bit, which is nice. <laughs> so, you know, I was I was the same with him in regards to, you know, when, when City lost to Chelsea and that's when yeah. we won the league. And yeah, I was saying, yeah. I don't want it to be like that. I want to see the players running around the I pitch knowing we've won the league. Absolutely, and then I've seen yeah. the videos then of them all in the hotel and them yeah, partying. Yeah. And then yeah. I've got shivers now. Me, yeah. and me, co- me and my cousin, my cousin come here at half time. We got a crate of ale. Yeah, yeah. we shouldn't have, but our well, we still win the league. We yeah. got a creative way up. As soon as he walked in the door, I think De Bruyne scored for City and yeah. it was 1-1. So I was like, I couldn't knew as soon as you come through that bastard door, they were going to yeah. score. And then obviously Absolutely. the penalty and all that. Um, went and watched the last two minutes of me, Mar and Daz, socially yeah. distanced around the telly, literally. Yeah. I yeah. took a flare with me. I set a flare off in me, Mar and Daz garden a full time. <laughs> we had a bevy and then me and my cousin jumped in the car and went to Anfield yeah. and it was... Like, man, yeah. like I've, I've yeah. never felt like that before. I never thought I'd experience anything like Istanbul again. That yeah. night at Anfield was yeah, was yeah. a place you'll ever get. I think it was unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. It was, oh, it was great. What's been your personal highlight under Jurgen Klopp? I know we've won the league and <sighs> Champions League yeah. and stuff. But what's been for you the, the biggest moments? <sighs> biggest moment for us would be probably the Champions League. You know, I think. The, the Tottenham Champions League was, was one for me. Well, finally winning a Champions League under Klopp as well. I think there was a lot of talk when he came in of these big, this big name manager, do you know what I mean? Like taking over and all that sort of stuff. And when we did actually win the, the European and stuff like that, it, that was one of my biggest memory of of that of, of Klopp doing it because we've persevered. Like, I'm just fucking idiots talking now about getting rid of Klopp and all that sort of stuff. It's ridiculous. Like, the, what he's done for this club is massive. Like no one realizes how much he's done for that team. The mentality, the way he treats the players, the the atmosphere around the ground, the staff. I, I mean, I was speaking to uh, Stephen Walnock a few weeks ago, and uh, he was saying like how different it is, and he's good friends at Milner, and he was saying how what the different preparations and everything to go to. He's transformed the club. So to actually win the titles that he, that we wanted him to do and and to perform doing that it is special. So yeah, I'd say the Champions League we won it. So. Yeah. You know, I don't think people realise that with Klopp, he's built a team to perform for an audience. Absolutely. Or a crowd. 
And yeah, without the yeah. crowd, the team are the same. I've tried to say it to everybody. Yeah, yeah. No, some people true, accept yeah. it, some people don't, but yeah. I don't think I don't think them players, if they were playing for another team in Europe, would be yeah. as good. I no, think he built not. them no. around the crowd, and I yeah. think that's why they yeah. are so good. You look at Salah when he went to when he went to uh, Chelsea. He, he wasn't very yeah. good at all. Do you know what I mean? Like he didn't. He flopped. Like a lot of them players went went top players and clock gold in them. And I think that's the difference is uh, the way he's built around it. And and he for me it feels that like the players are now fighting for the fans, are fighting for Klopp, are fighting for the club because wearing that badge means something to them players. Whereas a lot of the players are just uh, you see it at a lot of clubs where they just earn the pay packet, aren't they? They could be any club. They've been to twenty five clubs. They've been season pros at many premiership clubs, but then players look like they're playing for the badge, playing for the club. And I say with the crowd, it, it, it must be so hard. It must Because you know that people are watching on telly. You know all that, but it's not the same, is it? Like, it's not the same as having someone accountable in front of you doing it. So, yeah, no. for sure. You mentioned about, like, clock with the players and stuff like that. You want to yeah. go look at someone like Ginny Wijnaldum, there's no way. Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's no way yeah. you'd be getting a move to Barcelona if it wasn't for oh. the clock. Yeah. Before we had Klopp, can you imagine him talking about Wijnaldum going to Barcelona? Like, you'd be laughed at. Absolutely laughed at. Was he at Newcastle before us? He'd be laughed yeah. at when he, uh, if you were saying that. Look at Henderson. Henderson was, was a, a mid-table player, wasn't he? When before we got hold of him and now you look at him now. Like, leading the team to a, to a premiership. So, yeah, I think his man management is, is, is obviously his tactical prowess is good, but his, his man management is people and everyone of... I've, I've obviously met Klopp for a few minutes, but people I know that I've met him, I, I can't speak highly enough of him. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, he's one of them sort of people that lives and breathes it, and I can't. I want him to stay for a very long time. I, I, I don't know why even people are entertaining it of, of of trying to get him out. It's ridiculous. Like, it really is. It's just reactioning dickheads on Twitter, yeah, mostly, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Wolves. You know. <laughs> <More or less. laughs> yeah, basically. No, but when when things aren't going right, the the one reaction straight away. So it's like, yeah. Uh, we only won one. It's like you see them. We only won one nil. We should have been beating them three nil. It's like who's yeah, after three points? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I think I put a tweet out before we beat uh, Wolves, and I was like, I'm not bothered. How we win? I don't care if it bounces off Salah's ass. I don't care if it comes off. Just, I just want the win. Like I'm not bothered just how win, we do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not bothered. Yeah, it, it's I mean, just it's the crazy FIFA generation, thing isn't it? The FIFA generation are like, yeah, yeah. You, know, you don't For score sure. a couple of goals on that. You're going to spend 50, 60 mil on the game, and you yeah, literally exactly, think yeah. that's real life. Like yeah. Fenway Sports get absolute hell off this generation when yeah. because they're not putting their hands in their own pocket all the time and they're spending yeah. what you receive, then but that's how you run a business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Don't sell something for 200 mil and then go and spend 900 yeah. mil because that's not how you be a business, is it? Yeah, yeah. Do you know, do you know what I think a big thing is that football manager? I think everyone plays football manager and thinks I'd be boss of that, you know, and be much better than Klopp a football manager. Do you know what I mean? Like people have played it and think, oh, they're, they're amazing at it. But obviously, it's so much different than that. But people think they get the idea, don't they, from like FIFA and, and, and games like yeah. that? Of it's just a quick, easier of like getting get out. Who are you going to get in this better than Klopp at the moment? People are talking about Gerard coming in. Yeah, Gerard would be nice after Klopp when he's established. But whoever comes in after Klopp is going to be like Alex Ferguson when he leaves. Hopefully, you look at David Moyes, decent manager. But he, he, who are you going to follow? Whoever followed you know him was going to struggle. I, I reckon Ferguson's on a number on him there. I think he's absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. From made the and it made yeah. Ferguson look even better because when you look yeah. at that, season, they won that 100%, last yeah. oh yeah. my god, how's he done it? And that's yeah. why you have great managers. Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, this season we mentioned a little little while ago. This season isn't exactly going to plan in the league, at least yeah. anyway. Uh, are you confident we'll bounce back next season? Yeah, I think. I mean, there's a lot made of the injuries in there, of um, and all that sort of stuff. And yes, we should probably have a, a thicker squad and. 
buy more centre backs and all that sort of stuff. But the the partnership is what for me is, is so much difficult. The impact it has on on Allison of, of having that defensive line changing with Henderson. Henderson as a, a centre back done well, but he's not a centre back. Do you know what I mean? Having them players yeah. rotating round. Van Dyke was such a massive signing for us when we got him. People were laughing. Why do you pay eighty million for a, for a defender? Where have you paid for him? Like, but you look at how we transform that team. It's not so much about the players and positions because all footballers will do all right in certain positions. But it's the leadership of it. It's, it's knowing your mate is in that place exactly at that time, it, and all that sort of stuff. I think if, when we get that solid partnership, you look we were unstoppable. And I think once we get the injury sorted out, I think it, it will be a lot different. To be will bounce back. And I, I mean, we've banged on about this pub, but like the the crowd as well. I think once we get that sorted out, it'll be a massive, massive influence. And I, I can see it's been up there for for many a year. And the, the the league standard is getting a lot better. You look at the the, the totals throughout the years of um, win tallies for City and us and all that sort of. The standards getting higher and higher. But uh, yeah, I think we'll definitely bounce back next season. I can't see why we wouldn't. Well, the, the season's obviously not over yet. Can you hear us? Um, can you hear Istanbul yeah. calling? Can you <laughs> oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine me? Oh, I'll be in the only Yeah. I wonder if you get arrested in a wheelchair and take your chair off you. Yeah? Like, I'm going to get arrested. If we, that happens to us, I'll be running around, mate. Be, my legs will start working. Honestly, I just want them to call me for it. Like, everyone can, like, I think it was a character that said it on Sky a few weeks ago that it was going to happen. I, I can generally say, imagine if it happens. Just imagine if it goes down. Do you uh, think it can though? Yeah, I think. Well, why, why not? Like, why not? Like, you'd always believe, mate. We'd be three 0 down, and I and believe after Istanbul, like after the first time we did it. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, we, we put a good performance against Leipzig. To be fair, like I thought it was all right, and we 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 got back to the way of it. All right, the game wasn't the best game in the world, but I thought we ground out the one the win quite well. So, Madrid next round is uh, obviously tough, but the Madrid side is not as strong as it used to be. It's not. It's not. Madrid's a big name, but the, the players you've got at the moment aren't actually. It's probably the worst Madrid team in the last few years. So we've got a big chance there, to be fair. Like, if we get through that, it's, I think as well, they won't want to face us because people know the history that we've had with, with, with them sort of stuff. And Madrid won't be one of the faces doing that, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, we'll see. But I, I really, really hope so, mate. I really, really hope so. There's loads of lads who have booked flights because they obviously did yeah. travel. Ban ends yeah, on his 17th yeah. of May. Yeah. And the panels <laughs> after that and the amount of lads and all those boots. I was <laughs> contemplating booking it. And again, it gave me... I went to Kiev, we lost the final. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Went to loads of games that season, but it gave me ticket away to watch yeah. it in the Arnfella in the fucking Shandon. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm just never going to see us win the European Cup. I asked my dad yeah. if he's fancy booking Istanbul and he said no. So, um, we, 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 yeah. I'm think, I'm, I've got a, a good feeling about it. I think we'll yeah. we be there. Like. No, it'd be, it'd be uh, something special if we do, but it's definitely not beyond possibility, is it? Like, it'd be good to see. No, over two legs, you can never count us off. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so you mentioned obviously Gerard is is basically your hero. Um, yeah. Have you have you been keeping an eye on him at Rangers this season? What what have you made yeah. of his achievement? You know what I thought. I I'll be honest. I didn't think he'd do as well as he as he has done. I mean, the different levels of the Scottish Premiership. Okay, the standards not there. You can argue all them sort of points, but I think the biggest thing for me is the way he's conducted himself, the way he's the way he's run the team, the way he's. You look at the situation they had about the racism thing, the way he conducted that, he was just so professional about it and he, and he comes across as a manager now. He doesn't come across as Stephen Gerrard, the footballer, trying to be a manager. He comes across as an absolute manager and I think the players want to play for him and that's after battle in football nowadays and I think he uh, he's done really well. 
and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that he wants to be a Liverpool manager in the future. Obviously, we can't do that too soon. I think we've got to be careful when we when we do that because you could you could quite easily mess that up, couldn't you? But yeah, I'm really happy the way he's done at Rangers. Um, hopefully, longer may continue. I think he had that sort of after that leading that too, didn't he? You look at the when when he slipped and all that stuff. He was that he was an absolute leader, wasn't he, of doing that? And I think going into managing, he he's definitely took that forward. So yeah, I'm really surprised and impressed the way the way he's conducted himself there. Actually, with a a tough environment. Scotland's not a, not a uh, it's quite a hostile place sometimes, and so it's a have your first yeah. managing job as Rangers. It's a, it's a bit tough one, but he's handled it well. To fair to him, like he can't moan. Yeah, it's jumping in the deep end, isn't it? Like absolutely, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, to go to go unbeaten in more or less. I think they've lost yeah. two games all season in yeah, all exactly. competitions. It's like ridiculous. It's unheard of, even in even in Scotland. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's it's fantastic. Um, we're gonna we're gonna finish off with a, a few uh, little hypothetical questions for you here. Um, yeah. So, if you could choose any retired player who never played for Liverpool, yeah. who's the one player you would have loved to have seen in a red shirt? Oh, big big question. Now. This might sound a bit odd, you know, but Balak, I reckon we you could have been decent, you know. Remember watching him growing up, Balak, decent. Michael Balak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go on him. You know, he would have been he'd be in all right. Yeah, he was right, or, to be fair. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it popped in my head, but I remember as a kid watching things, he's decent, you know. Because everyone talks about Ronaldo and Messi and all them sort of stuff, but yeah, I'd go with Balak, you know. Who's yours, Jan? Um, I'd, I'd probably have to go either Thierry Henry or Dennis Bergkamp. Oh, yeah, nice, yeah. Yeah, Freddie Thierry Lundberg. Henry. Yeah. Thierry Henry for me, I absolutely idolise him. And do you know what? Didier Drogba as well. I think he's one yeah, of the best yeah. players in the league. Was, yeah. I hated him when he played for Chelsea because of everything he was about. He was there Suarez when he was a rat. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Oh, mate, he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, his quality, yeah. I really wish we had a stable keeper as well. I always wish we had like a Neuer, but before we had before we got Allison, we were messing about with the keepers and stuff. I really wish we had a really, really solid keeper like your Van der Sars or your, your, yeah. even your Barteses like back in the day. Do you know what I mean? Just someone who was solid, well-known at the back, but... Yeah, we, we could have had plenty of players over. We, we imagine if you got everyone together that we've been rumoured with over the years and seen what team we had. It'd be mental. Do you know what I mean? like, we've always been that team that rumoured, never got anyone. So I, I think we'd have about seven starting eleven. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's on you now. It's not. I finish off with the last two, lad. Yeah, but up to the last two. Apologies. <laughs> 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 we are amateurs I love it. <laughs> if there was any ex-Liverpool player you could bring back to play under Jürgen Klopp yeah. who would it be? under Jürgen Klopp oh it's got to be Gerrard to win the title I know he, he might have played underneath him but I think I'd bring him back to win the title I think I'd bring a prime Gerrard back to, to lead the Henderson's doing well but I think uh, yeah it has to be Gerrard I'd love to see Gerrard Carragher would be good in the back especially nowadays Carragher would be amazing but uh yeah, I'd love to, I'd absolutely would have loved to see Gerard lift that cup. So I'd, I'd bring back Gerard till he's about 45 so we lift the cup, I think. Just have him on the bench, bring him on at like 90th minute. Bring him on just limping about like they do in uh, soccer aid. You know, just bring him on. He's going to be all right, probably. <laughs> you see, fair, he'd probably put a shift in, wouldn't he? Yeah. yeah. Probably, he's probably Rangers, but he's best player, to be honest. So. <laughs> probably is, yeah. <laughs> Who would you have, Jay? Um... I like including all of us in the questions. You saying you think it's yeah. I think at the minute with for with Firmino not really firing on all cylinders, I'd go with like a Robbie Fowler. Nice, yeah. Just a, just an out and out goal scorer. Yeah. Doesn't have to look up, knows where it is, and is just going to bury it every time. Yeah. Torres. 
He broke my heart. Yeah. Jake cried when he left. Uh, do you know what was worse, lad? When we were pretending to be excited that Andy Carroll was in a helicopter. Oh, on the way my we God, yeah. Andy and we're all looking for helicopters with Andy Carroll. I've got to end it on, a, on a, a bit of a sad note. Um, yeah. Obviously, Klopp is more than likely going to leave in 2024. Yeah. Who would be your ideal replacement? <sighs> See, the obvious answer would be Gerard, but I don't know whether we should go Gerard straight away from Klopp. You know, I think we we probably should. It's it's going to inevitably happen. Hopefully, if he wins a lot more cups in the next uh, what four three years, who do you replace him with? You could pick any sort of manager. I would rather. I'm gonna go. This is gonna sound odd, but I'm gonna go Mourinho so he flops, so he doesn't manage again, and then we'll go. Then we'll go Gerard. That's what I'm gonna do. Someone like an Ancelotti or someone just someone who's gonna a big name gonna flop, and then we'll get Gerard and clear it out. Like Joe used to do my football to Marino. It would be like all the perfection, wouldn't it? Yeah. Big Sam Allardyce ball over the top. <laughs> yeah, I think, do you know what I think? Be, if, if Klopp leaves and we're champions of everything, again, yeah. we're champions of your and we're, we've yeah. got a massive foundation like we have now and Gerard can step in and just take take yeah. on and sort of manage it like Klopp did. I think it would be yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's got to leave on perfect terms sort yeah, of thing. Exactly, Otherwise, yeah. as you say, yeah, you need yeah. someone to come in and then Gerard save us, sort of thing. That's yeah, how it would be perceived. Yeah. Um, Who would you bring in? Me? Yeah. I'd leave it to Pep Linders for a few seasons and yeah. see how he goes. I wouldn't like... Yeah. The thought of Klopp not being there... I know, I don't me, like it. <laughs> yeah. It makes it a little bit better with the thought of Gerard coming in. And then me, even... Say, imagine having Gerard with, like, character as assistant and yeah, yeah, Alonso's sure. and that getting involved, but he's obviously a manager now, but... Yeah, I think Pep Linders, keep it safe. You'll play the same system. Yeah. You know the players and all that. Get Maybe get someone in, like what you used to do in the old times, and you'd have Ronnie Moran under someone or Roy Evans under someone. Keep yeah. it in, in the club, and then Gerard eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've got Pep Linders, as you say, or yeah. one whose name doesn't seem to get thrown about. Is that um, Nagelsmann, the, the Leipzig one? Yeah. I think, yeah. I think he'd do a good job in a few years. He's only, I think he's only like 33, 34. He's younger than Milner, so like, yeah. <laughs> but to be fair, everyone's younger than Milner. Milner's um, been around since he's about 10, isn't he? like, he literally yeah. was been around, <laughs> and he still looked the oldest fella on the pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember just... going back and speaking to uh, Stephen Warnock a few weeks ago, and he, he said he's one of like best mates of uh, Will Milner, and he said he's an absolute consummate professional. He's the one who's like on the training ground before it starts, after it ends. Running up the players, sorting out the young players. He said he's he's an absolute consummate professional. Keeps himself in good shape all the time. Like he loves the game. He said he's never changed, and his 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 passion's still there for it. The way he speaks, so he still pisses the as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, he's, he's a workhorse. Yeah, he's definitely one of the most underrated Premiership players this at at the moment. The most underrated player. The the shift he puts in, he's like an old dead coy, like dead coy, You know what I mean? It's the absolute workhorse that come on you can rely on. Like coming in and doing a job for us, he might not be able to do the full ninety minutes now, but he comes on and does a job. Like do you know what I mean? And he, he's always he'll never have a well deep, but he'll never have a shite game. He's one of them sort of players anywhere you can rely on him in them sort of situations. So yeah, Milner, love yeah, Milner. He's one of them. Not, he's never done anything like world class, but yeah, like, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes hard work beats you yeah. know talent, and I think he's been he's obviously got talent, but the way he yeah. comes in, he's yeah, yeah, he's been brilliant for us. 
I yeah, wouldn't like to watch his highlight reel, but I like to watch him in the, in the <laughs> matches. You know what I mean? Like he's one of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember before we got him, I always thought he was shite. Never, yeah, me too. Yeah. Never understood yeah. what he brought to, to a team. And then it, it was a little bit before we got him, to be fair, I started really yeah. recognising what he does. Bring. Yeah. And I think we've, I think we always endeared ourselves to players like that, who yeah. are workhorses, you know, your, your Endersons, your, your Wine yeah, Album yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, you know, you've said yeah. yourself, Jay, like, you don't really understand why Naldum's game unless you're at the match and you're watching him all the time. Same yeah. with Henderson. So we we've got a sort of a little place in our half for players like that. And yeah. Milner's the ultimate player like that. Yeah, he's great for sure. Um, but Jack, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Um, no, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Not a problem. Best of luck for Tokyo. Thanks very much. We'll be rooting for you. And as I say, we'll get you back home when you've got a gold medal round your neck. Sounds good to me, mate. Sounds good. Cheers, boys. Thanks for coming on, lad. I really appreciate it. Being uh, inspirational as well. And I think anyone oh, listening, you. everything you've discussed about your personal life and that might hit home with someone. And even yeah, tonight, hopefully. you could have possibly come straight to life, lad, the way you've spoke. I hope, so, I hope so, mate. I hope so. It's all worthwhile if that happens for me. That's that's what more than the medals, more than anything else. If I can help someone, then that's my job done. That's all that's what I want to do. So yeah, thanks, boys. I'm sure you keep doing it, lad. So nice yeah. one for coming on. Cheers, thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye, bye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.